So welcome to an irreverent history of English settlement. So right off the bat, it's important to mention what we're skipping over at the very beginning. To go way back to the very beginning, uh, so things obviously got started with the Big Bang, uh, then a bunch of geology stuff happened, like Pangea, and the continents moved all around uh, until they basically ended up to basically where they are today. So at some point, maybe about 40,000 years ago, but the numbers are pretty rough at that point, uh, there was a land bridge between Asia and the Americas. Basically, the land bridge worked kind of like this. So today there's an ocean between Alaska and Russia, but there used to be dry land. So archaeologists and historians basically think that one day some people in what is today Russia were out hunting and, and the woolly mammoth or whatever they were after was crossing this land bridge, which of course didn't look like a bridge, it was just regular land, and the people just kept going after it. And a bunch of people did that, and they kept moving and hunting and dying and having babies, and after a while the whole continents of North and South America were full of people, and those people were the Native Americans. And things went fine for a while. Some tribes were nomadic, some were farmers who didn't move around so much. There were some big civilizations like the Mississippians and the Aztec and the Mayans, and lots of smaller groups, and everybody was just chilling and doing their thing. And the Vikings came by for a while and settled in Canada for a bit, but there were a ton of mosquitoes, and I guess they thought Iceland was cooler than Canada, so after a while the Vikings left without making any crazy major impact. And the rest of Europe didn't really care what the Vikings were up to, and the Vikings didn't go around telling everybody, like, hey, new continent over here, because they probably didn't think it was a new continent. But anyway, Columbus got in, his, got in his stupid little head that they could go to Asia by sailing west, which actually all the smart people at the time who totally knew the Earth was round knew that you could get to Asia by going west, but they were actually good at math, unlike Columbus, and they were like, dude, you're totally going to die. That's way too far. But Columbus was bad at doing his math, and he was like, I'm right and you're stupid. And he convinced Isabella and Ferdinand of Aragon and Castile that he was right. And they just kicked the Islamic Moors out of Spain, and they were ready to flex on everybody. And they especially wanted to flex on the Portuguese. So they were like, hey, sure, give it a try, Columbus. So Columbus discovered, in quotes, the new world for Spain, which of course was very well known to the people who were already living there. And then the Spanish got rich, like crazy stupid rich. So rich that it was kind of too much for the whole economy and caused crazy inflation from all the silver they discovered. And the way they got really rich was exploiting all the natives and turning them into not quite slaves with the encomienda system and using them as also to uh, get silver out of mines and stuff like that. On top of that, there was all this exchange of disease, mostly from the Europeans to the Native Americans, except for syphilis, which went the other way. So to get back to where we are going to pick up our story of English settlement, um, in summary, the Spanish had taken over everything in the Americas, for the most part, uh, except what was on their side of the Treaty of Tordesillas, which was just this line that the Pope drew and was like, you stay on your side and everybody else on the other side, before the British could even get out of bed. And they were really eager to make up for lost time and get into the colonization game. So previously, the English had sent the explorer, who they called John Cabot, but actually was Italian, so that wasn't exactly how he said his name. But anyway, he'd been exploring in modern-day North America, and the English were interested in following up on that and building their own empire. So the first attempt at establishing an English colony in North America didn't go great. You might have heard of this place. It's called Roanoke. And Roanoke is an island a little bit off the coast of North Carolina. So starting in 1585, the English tried to set up a colony there with funding from this rich British guy named Sir Walter Raleigh. And initially, they set up a very small settlement with a very small number of men, but after a while, they went back to England on another ship. But the larger expedition that's more widely known was led by John White. 
White's expedition set up a little settlement with 115 people, including some women and at least one kid. Virginia, ba- Virginia Dare was a little baby that was born to John White's daughter, Eleanor, who'd come out to Roanoke with her husband. To me, that seems like maybe not the best parenting on anyone's part, like moving your pregnant daughter out to the middle of nowhere wilderness where you think there might be hostile Native Americans seems like kind of a weird choice. And why do these parents want to go have a baby in this place that hadn't even been set up yet, like even a little bit? I don't know, but this kid is kind of famous because she was the first English child born in the New World. So eventually it gets cold and pretty tough in this first settlement, so John White decides to peace out and go back to England and try and get some help. And he tells everybody when he's leaving that he's going to be right back, but turns out that it's going to be harder than he thinks. So John White gets back to England and he's trying to put together more funding and more supplies and a ship to go back from England to the New World. But then Spain decides to fight England. So Spain sends their pretty cool armada up to England to totally wipe out the English Navy. But then there's a wicked bad storm and the British win. So that's good for them. But it's bad for John White because now all the ships and crews want to go fight the Spanish, not go off to North Carolina. And eventually he does get a ship, but then that ship gets in a fight with a Spanish ship, and the Spanish ship takes all the supplies, and there's no point going to Groenoke if you don't have, like, food and guns and stuff, so he has to start again. So finally, after three years, he gets a ship to take him back to Roanoke. But when he gets to Roanoke, poof, everyone is gone. So there's a couple clues about where they went. There's no bodies or anything, so they weren't all massacred or something. And there's a little bit of the word Croatan carved in a tree. And they'd agreed before John White left that if they ran into trouble, they'd write where they were going on a tree. And that they would put a cross if it was like a really big problem. And they didn't put a cross. Um, And that's pretty much what they did. But then even though White had come all the way across the ocean to meet up with this colony again, White and the crew of the ship were like, nah, guess we shouldn't go check out the nearby island of Croton because there's like a storm coming. So time to go home. And that's how Roanoke became known as the Lost Colony. Over the years, people have made up a lot of theories about what happened to the colony. Everything from they were abducted by aliens, they were murdered by Native Americans, they tried to go back to England in like a really tiny boat, a lot of them died so they had to try to move in with Native Americans, uh, that there was a really bad ecological disaster that year and a really bad drought conditions. So the list goes on and on, but my opinion is that the simple answer is probably the right one. To me, it seems pretty likely that they moved over to Croton Island or joined up with the local Croton Indians. The fact that John White never really went looking for them in any particularly serious way makes me think there probably were some survivors in the area, but you know, maybe like try looking around a little bit? So in conclusion, John White, probably not the best grandpa considering that he had this grandchild born in the new world and he was like, nah, I'm gonna go home now. So just like the colony at Roanoke, the colony at Jamestown seemed to face a lot of problems. Uh, And obviously we don't know exactly what happened at Roanoke, but the way things went at Jamestown uh, indicates that things weren't always easy when you were setting up a colony in the New World, especially for the English. So the goals and characteristics of the Virginia Company influenced, you know, the kind of people that were involved in going to the colony and a lot of the problems that the colony and the company faced when they were first getting going. So if you've ever seen the movie Pocahontas, which, you know, I'm not uh, endorsing the movie or trying to steal Disney's copyright or anything, so, uh, you know, don't get mad, Disney, uh, just for commentary purposes and whatever. Um, So if you've ever seen the movie Pocahontas, there's this kind of early scene right at the beginning where the guy who's in charge of the expedition in the movie, he's wearing a lot of purple. That's what I always remember. 
he has this whole song that is on a CD that's in my kid's car. And I always just, er, in the car with my kids. And I always describe it to my students like this, that uh, there's this song and the whole point of the whole song is uh, mine, mine, mine. And so my younger son, he always says, this is called the not sharing song. And I think that's kind of a good mindset when we think about, you know, who was going to the Virginia colony at Jamestown and or the Virginia company's colony at Jamestown and, the mindset of the people initially and, uh, you know, all the problems that they faced in that sort of non-sharing mentality. So there were initially a lot of rich boys who didn't really want to work, uh, who went to the Virginia colony, which again, you can kind of see in that Pocahontas movie. So that's cool to have a bunch of rich boys hanging around. And, uh, you know, that's how you get nobles and nobility and, you know, civil advanced civilization but that's bad if you're trying to start a colony you you can have lazy nobles and idle nobles lying around if you already have a surplus but in jamestown they kind of have the opposite of that so that was bad and they started actually to go into this whole time called the starving time so what was the starving time well historians aren't always the most creative namers so it's a lot like what it sounds like so when everybody arrived in jamestown they were kind of thinking, oh man, we're going to find so much gold right away and it's going to be so great. And as a textbook that I use sometimes with my students points out, the ground, the actual soil is incredibly fertile or was incredibly fertile at the time and that the woods were like teeming with game, the rivers were full of fish. There was plenty of food available or potential food available for those who wanted it or were willing to work for it. But the early colonists at Jamestown were very much thinking that this is just going to be a little bit like how the Spanish had encountered these silver mines and uh, had quickly turned to the encomienda system uh, with the natives. And they, they kind of assumed that they would have a similar experience. However, that really wasn't going to be the case. There is not a ton of gold in Virginia. Potentially, they're going to find quote-unquote kind of gold in the ground, uh, and that's going to be tobacco. But there's not just gold lying around. There's no silver mine like at Potosi or something like that in Virginia. So they're not having initially a lot of luck. And because many historians would say they're not well organized and they don't have this division of labor, they're not really allowing people who may have potentially wanted to work not digging gold, but, you know, like farming stuff. Uh, Some historians say that it's sort of the fault of the fact that they want to put anyone who was a pretty productive laborer, they want to put them to work just mining, not, you know, farming or hunting or something like that. It's sort of this breakdown of good management and good sort of everyone working together and pulling their weight that Virginia or the Jamestown colony enters this starving time. And uh, basically what that means is despite the fact that the land is fertile and there's potentially plenty of food, it's not Antarctica or something like that, uh, for several years the colony goes through this time of literally drastic population decreases from over 500 people to less than 100 people um, over the course of a couple of years just through starvation and then disease because of a lack of food. So that's all 
pretty bad. Um, and so for a while there had been this rumor among kind of historians and kind of people who looked into Jamestown, there was a sort of rumor or idea that the people had engaged in cannibalism in Jamestown. And historians, more respectable historians might have been like, no, no, that's not true. They didn't do that. But then a while back, some archaeologists went down and were doing excavation at Jamestown and they were digging up bones and stuff. And they were like, oh, psych, actually, uh, these people were totally eating each other because this bone has like human teeth on it and that's not good or teeth marks on it. And, you know, that's bad. That means they were definitely eating each other. So we now have conclusive proof that during the starving time, people were not, you know, being so great and they were maybe snacking on their friends. So that's bad. Don't do that. Something about the starving time that's really interesting is that there was this resupply voyage that was coming over from England, and it may have potentially even inspired the Tempest, though I hear there's some disagreement about that, so like, don't at me, because I don't have Twitter, so don't do that. Um, but there's this ship called the Sea Venture, and it was coming over to resupply Jamestown, and they experienced a hurricane, and hence kind of the Tempest, uh, and they were actually shipwrecked, but they were shipwrecked off this island off the coast of Bermuda, and it turned out that the island was actually great and uh, not a terrible place to be. There were no, you know, unfriendly inhabitants, and there were, like, wild pigs, and there was animals um, that and food that people could eat, so, so that was actually okay, uh, but eventually, like, the captain of the Sea Venture was like, no, we have to get to Jamestown and do this thing, but the people who were actually working on the Sea Venture, who had been a couple of times to Jamestown, told all the other English passengers, like, you don't want to go to Jamestown because it really sucks there and everybody's starving and you don't want to go there. And the captain was like, no, no, we got to go to Jamestown. And, and the English uh, sort of government uh, represented on the Sea Venture was like, no, we got to go. And the ship people on the Sea Venture were like, you probably don't want to. And all the passengers were essentially forced to put together uh, this ship that was going to go to Jamestown, even though the people who were working uh, on the ship were like, maybe we could just stay here because there's like barbecue with these pigs and it's not terrible on a deserted island off the coast of Bermuda. But eventually they do go to Jamestown. Uh, the repaired kind of a rebuilt, I guess, Sea Venture ships. And so uh, the Sea Venture people, they finally get into Jamestown and they were like, sweet, finally some help. But then all the people in Jamestown, because it was a starving times, were like, sweet, finally some help. And that was not good when everybody was like, uh oh, you're here to rescue me. And they're like, no, no, you're here to rescue me. So that was bad. So then they all decided to like peace out of there and make Jamestown like Roanoke and go back to England. And so they all get onto the ships that they have. And but then as they're going out of the harbor, they're going to leave Jamestown. Surprise! Just as they were leaving the harbor, the ship from England starts sailing into the harbor. And the captain on that ship was like, hey, I'm in charge and you're not going anywhere. So let's get back to Jamestown and make this work. Of course, both the English settlers at Roanoke and at Jamestown were not alone in the quote-unquote new world. Both settlements were affected by and affected the local Native American communities in profound ways. The Jamestown area was home to several tribes of Native Americans, and because the English called their loose association the Powhatan Confederacy, they called all the Native Americans in the area Powhatans. Now, relations didn't have to be terrible, of course. Initially, the English got along reasonably well with the Native Americans, and the leader of this confederacy thought at first that maybe the English could be a useful counterweight and ally in his wars with his neighbors. 
but the Virginia Company had big plans for the settlement that didn't include getting along with Native American communities. The settlers at Jamestown fought a series of wars with the Powhatan Indians for the next several decades, and by the end of the century, they were mostly considered to be wiped out. Finally, as you might have guessed by the fact that Jamestown is actually known as the first permanent English settlement in the New World, they eventually did stop starving and started to get their act together a little bit. As I mentioned earlier, the thing that's going to make that possible is tobacco. Tobacco is a plant indigenous to the New World and was cultivated by Native Americans. Early explorers had introduced it to Europe, and as my fifth grade dare officer explained to me when I was 10, tobacco is pretty addictive, so that makes it a pretty good thing to be selling. The settlers at Jamestown actually created and cultivated their own strand, which people in England were pretty into. This eventually was a salvation of the colony and led to their eventual success. But who was growing all that tobacco? The Native Americans couldn't really be put to work on an encomienda-like system, the way the Spanish had done in their colonies, because like I said, the English waged war on them in, in Jamestown and they were badly hurt by disease. You might be thinking African slaves, but that's actually jumping the gun a little bit. African slaves would be used in large numbers later in history. The first large-scale workforce were people called indentured servants. These were single people, mostly men, who signed up to be a little like slaves, but with a theoretical expiration date. I say theoretical because a lot of them died before their typical four to seven year term was up. These people would come over from England and their passage would be paid by some landowner. In exchange, the indentured servant worked for that person for a set term. At the end of that term, the indentured servant was supposed to get like a set of clothes and a plot of land from the landowner. However, as I said, not a huge percentage of these folks ended up with that because, you know, a lot of them died by the end. Though it was theoretically possible for a former indentured servant to kind of make it in the new world, so to speak. So I'd like to conclude today with one of the whiniest primary source documents I've ever encountered in my life, and it gives you a little insight into the life of these poor folks who were laboring to make the Virginia colony profitable in the early years. This is from a guy named Richard Freethorn, and he's writing to his parents about how awful the conditions are. I'm only going to read part of the letter, but in another part, he asks his parents to please send him some stuff from England so he can sell it to make some money and get out of this terrible situation. So he starts off. Loving and kind father and mother, my most humble duty remembered to you, hoping in God of your good health, as I myself am the making hereof. This is to let you understand that I, your child, am in a most heavy case, by reason of the nature of the country, which is such that it causeth, causeth me much sickness, as the scurvy and the bloody flux, and diverse other diseases, which make the body very poor and weak. And when we are sick, there's nothing to comfort us. For since I came out of the ship, I never ate anything but peas and lollaby. As for deer or venison, I never saw any since I came into this land. There is indeed some fowl, but we are not allowed to go and get it, but must work hard both early and late for a mess of water gruel and a mouthful of bread and beef. So he goes on. And I have nothing to comfort me, nor is there nothing to be gotten here but sickness and death, except one who has money to lay out in some things for profit. But I have nothing at all, no, not a shirt on my back, but two rags, nor no clothes, but one poor suit, nor but one pair of shoes, but one pair of stockings, but one cap. My cloak was stolen by one of my fellows, and to his dying hour, he would not tell me what he did with it. But some of my fellows saw him have butter and beef out of a ship, which my cloak, I don't doubt, paid for. So as you can see, uh, he sounds like a lot of fun, but it shows you a little bit what early Virginia was like. So thanks for listening to this episode of Mildly Amusing History Class.